God, we are so grateful um, that we can come before you um, and you welcome us. God, that through your son, uh, we can know you and be known by you, um, that we can receive forgiveness and wholeness from you. And so God, I pray that as we, as we look at your word this morning, as, uh, I pray that we would encounter your son um, that all the, all the distractions, the busyness, for some of us, the, the pains that weigh us down or the doubts and skepticism, God, I pray that even through all of those for each of us, that you would speak to us. God, I pray that you'd help me um, as I communicate. Help me to be clear. Help me not to say anything that's unhelpful, um, but help uh, what you want to be said to be said and to be heard in ways that change us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so... What would it take to get you to worship some guy? I mean, like some human person, like a man or a woman, to actually uh, worship them. And worship meaning like affection, adoration, allegiance. I give you, I give you my heart, my, my life, my, my joy, all of it, it's yours. Like, what would it take? Now, now for, for some, like, and for me, I'm one of those, but uh, like going to a baseball game can be a little bit of like a, a worship experience, right? Especially, especially if the Royals are, are, are winning, um, preferably. Um, you know, the, the cheering, the excitement, the energy, right? The, sort of the mass enthusiasm you've been there. Maybe you've been, uh, you know, in a sporting event, baseball or, or something else, where, you know, there's this incredible play and everybody's like, does one of these, you know, like we're not worthy sort of thing. Um, we do that. It's kind of, kind of like worship, but even then, like you're not thinking that like maybe Hosmer created the universe, right? I mean, it's not, it's not part of it. It's, it's different than that. Or, or maybe, maybe when you hear like worship, you think, well, you think about the human capacity to worship really just about anything, right? Anything that makes us feel loved or, or safe or, or, or important, uh, you name it, we can worship it, right? We make gods out of family and money and sex and power and success and, right? You name it, we can, we can make a, a god out of it. And yet even that is a little bit different than what we're talking about this morning when we talk about worship. And so let me, let me like make it as concrete as, as possible. What would it take to get you to worship me. Nathan Andrew Miller of Olathe, Kansas, born in 1979, uh, to label me the son of God, to get you to write songs about me, right? Not just about me, but, but sung to me, right? Uh, to command your obedience and, and submission, right? Your, your respect and, and reverence and awe and love, to get you to tell your friends about me, to, to build communities, in my name, all over the world. What would it take? I mean, really, I'd, I'd love to know. In, in case this doesn't work out, the whole cult thing, it could be fun for a while, right? Um, no, of course not. I mean, it just points out how ridiculous it is. It's not, we, don't, we don't do that. Nobody here, like, you hear that, like, Nathan, there is nothing you could ever do, ever, that would convince me to worship you. And that's, that's the right response, right? We just, we don't do that for other humans at all, right? There's no way I'm worshiping some guy. No one, no way, never. And you know that that's true, whether, whether you're a Christian or not, right? Whether you're a, a church person or not. And students, children, like you, you recognize this as well. It's just, it's ridiculous to even think about. And yet, here's where it gets a little bit complex. In our story this morning, 
I mean, here we are again in, in Matthew. As a church, we've been studying Matthew for about six or seven months. And today we're in all of chapter 14. It's kind of a long chapter, but it's one long day in the life of Jesus. I mean, honestly, it's like if it's long for Jesus, it's like super long for his disciples, okay? Um, and at the end of this day, we'll get there, but at the end of this day, for the very first time in Matthew, like this has not happened before. We're talking uncharted terrain. At the end of this day, Matthew tells us that his disciples worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. You following this? Like their day ends with the disciples doing the exact thing all of us just decided we would never do in any situation ever, right? So how? Like how do they, how do they get to that point? And I, I know what some of you are thinking. I'd be thinking it as well if the research wasn't so strong against this. But we tend to think, well, that's just what they did back then, Right? We're talking uneducated, superstitious, backwoods, hillbillies, right? Of course, they, they, were, they worship trees and the sun, and why not add a little Jesus? Like, what's, what's the big deal? And, and it's true that some cultures did worship all kinds of, of different things. It wasn't quite as haphazard as that, nor were they as ignorant as we sometimes sort of like to think they were, so we can feel like we've, you know, finally arrived as, as humans. Um, and there, there were people who, you know, ascribed deity to their leaders, right? Caesars or emperors, and, and they were worshipped. That did happen. But you got to hear this. Not the Jews. Like, if, if there was one thing at this point that they understood as a people, one thing that they would never even think about doing, not in a million years, it was worshipping anyone other than Yahweh. Yahweh is, is the name of, of of, of God, right? It's the name that they knew him by, right? That, that, it's him only. It wasn't just a religion for them anymore. It was their identity. It was who they were. We worship Yahweh, period. That's it. I mean, centuries earlier, okay, they'd, they dabbled with other gods, but it was a train wreck for them. By the first century, and, and, and books and articles have been written about this subject. Like historically, by the first century, they are obsessively strict monotheists. And no situation ever at this point would a group of Jewish men ever just start casually worshiping some guy. They'd literally rather be killed. The simplest example that I can think of for us, this, this kind of this context here, it, like imagine a family of really strict vegans. Okay, that's probably about as strict as you can get with, with food, right? Um, so Matt, like, and they, they are like of the no cheating variety ever, okay? So you imagine them. And it's like, not, it's not just they are vegans, their parents were vegans, their, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, their great, for generation and generation and generation. In fact, they told the stories all the time. Like the last time anyone in their family line had eaten meat, their stomachs literally exploded. I mean, that's, that's essentially like what happened when the last time the Israelites worshipped other gods, it was exile. It was death and slavery for them. And they told that story every single moment they got. Now imagine that family of vegans all of a sudden, without warning, sitting down and having a big juicy steak. It at least makes you wonder what happened, right? Like what led to this moment? Because at the end of this day, these Jewish disciples are worshiping Jesus. Absolute, unprecedented, cataclysmic heresy. Unless, right? 
what would it take for them to worship? Make that a little bit more personal, right? What would it take for you to worship? And we see it in this, this day for the disciples. It all, it all comes after what are two of the most well-known stories about Jesus. Whether you've been in church or not, you've probably at least heard glimpses of some of these stories. And it had to be one crazy day, right? I mean, to, to end like this for them, right? You, you can imagine that. And this, this day begins, again, we're in chapter 14 of Matthew. It, it begins really like, it seems like most days in the life of Jesus, because uh, if, you're, if you're catching on by this point, if you've been with us these past uh, several weeks, you, you maybe have picked up on it. Um, but like everybody is trying to figure out who Jesus is, right? I mean, that, that story after story, they keep asking, where does he get his power and authority? They don't, they don't question that he has it, only where he got it. And so, you know, a few weeks ago, we were talking about the Pharisees, right? And, and for them in chapter 12, they said, well, he gets his power by the devil. That's how he does these incredible things. And then, and then last week in chapter 13, he, Jesus was in his hometown, right? And they, they were asking, marveling, like, where does he get this stuff, right? How does, it, how does he do these things? And then now, in chapter 14, it's a new day. And this time, it's Herod. Herod is, is one of the Jewish political leaders in the hip pocket of the Romans. Generally hated by his people, but deeply powerful. He has a theory about Jesus, he actually accuses Jesus behind his back at this time. This time. He accuses Jesus essentially of being the, um, like the zombie of John the Baptist. Like that's, that's his solution. Like, well, Jesus, uh, you, you get your power uh, because you're John raised from the dead. That's how he explains it away. You see, everybody, everybody has a theory about Jesus because you, you cannot just ignore him there's something too, too unique, too incredible, like too just unprecedented about him just to be swept under the rug. Everyone has a theory. And now in the middle of Matthew, it's time for, for Matthew who's writing. It's time for him to show us his theory. And really, really more than that, it's time for Jesus to, to take his disciples one step closer into showing them who he really is. And think about this. Matthew's one of those guys. Like, this is what he saw. This is, this is him describing his experiences for us with his own eyes. Three things he saw that day. Three. One, that Jesus is the compassionate king. Next, that Jesus is the powerful king. And then finally, we'll get there, Jesus is the merciful king. And seeing what they saw, they couldn't help but worship. Okay, so let's, let's take a look at this first thing here. First, first, Matthew saw that Jesus is the compassionate king, which often in that, that culture, that day and age, those words didn't go together very often, did they? Compassion and king. But that's, that's clearly who, who Matthew saw. But verse, verse 13, this is how Matthew describes it. He says, now when Jesus heard this, yet another accusation about where he gets his power, right? Um, Jesus withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, Jesus saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. It's already, I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of a cool day, right? And yet not, not a shocking day. This is just part of par for the course by this point with the disciples. This is what they do with Jesus. And yet, 
Look what happens next. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Okay, so picture, picture the scene, right? It all, it all kind of makes sense, right? The disciples, they're tired at this point. They've been with Jesus all day doing these things, you know, watching him, seeing him. And the, and the crowds, they're just sort of caught up in all of it, right? They can't leave. Like, they, they want to know, what is he going to say next? Like, they don't want to miss the next miracle. They're there and they can't just walk away. And so Jesus, like, he has this, this solution, right? Sounding, honestly, like a crazy person, right? That's got to be what his disciples thought at first at this point. He says to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Like 5,000 men, and then in addition, like women and children. So we're talking a lot of people here, and all they have are five loaves and two fish. You give them something to eat. Oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus, sure, right? Oh, you're serious, right? I mean, it, they, just, they had no category for this. Even if they had the money to buy food for that many people, where would they get it, right? There's no Costco, right, or Pizza Hut. They, they don't have any, any possibility of doing what Jesus told them to do, not on their own. And so Jesus, Matthew tells us, he takes the little food they do have and he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and he, then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. I don't know about you, but I just, I love the fact that the disciples had to hand it out, right? Like that he involves them in, in the miracle. Like they just can't sit passive wondering. I mean, don't you just like picture them going back to Jesus and be like, like, you, have, you know, and then going out and they'd be like, it's, it's got to be gone. And there's just more and they keep going and they bring it and everybody's satisfied. I don't, I don't think it's incidental either that there's 12 disciples and 12 baskets of leftovers, Right? It's like Jesus made a mistake. Whoops, I made too much, right? I mean, I, I think he's showing them, hey, guys, there's something unique happening here. And again, you got to picture Matthew like he's there, the one writing this. Watch him carrying that basket full of bread, thinking, man, I've got to write this stuff down, right? Nobody's going to believe this. What would it take for them to worship? Well, this is only just the beginning of this day for them, even though it's already evening. It's a long day. But one thing had to be true. Jesus, Jesus is the compassionate king. Because the disciples here, they understand what's, what's happening, right? Uh, they, they knew culturally, historically, where they are, that any king or general that can produce bread, that can feed an endless amount of people without fear, that king or general is invincible, right? There's no stopping him. No army can overcome that, right? Because, I mean, food is everything in a culture, a subsistence culture. And the one who has that cannot be stopped, and they know it right? And the crowds are beginning to see it. And then also, they knew the stories the disciples did, right? They, they grew up hearing about the manna, the bread from heaven that God had provided his people in the wilderness, that he fed them day after day after day. Only God does that. Only God can provide for his people. And I think what I love most, though, about this story is just how ordinary it is. You got to kind of appreciate that. I mean, it's extraordinary, right? There's nothing ordinary about multiplying bread, but I mean, bread is just absolutely ordinary, right? And, and sadly, hungry people are ordinary. And yet, that's what Jesus does for them. I mean, couldn't they have just skipped a meal, right? But he had compassion on them. He's not just powerful. 
We'll get to that. But he's loving and they taste his goodness. Yeah, good for them, right? But what about us? Like, how does that actually, what does, what does that mean for me, right? Well, if Jesus is the compassionate king, if, if he's a king like this, it means we can trust him with every one of our needs. No matter, how, no matter how big or scary or far off they seem, right? And not that he's just gonna come through like some magic genie either, but yet knowing his compassion, knowing, knowing that he can do this, we, we trust him. The hard part, I think, for many of us is that we don't really trust God for our food, right? We may pray before a meal or something, but like I work for that, right? I, I bought the food, I made it, right? That's, that's me, right? That's sort of the culture we live in, but we have to realize that that is, that is remarkably rare in the history of the world, even around the world today. To, to, to think for a moment that God is not the one providing our food, is, it's out of context for global history, right? With hungry people. Do we recognize his compassion? Even in the mundane like that. Well, how do you know if you're trusting him with your needs? I thought about that. I think there's some signs, right? If if you're trusting him with your needs, you're you're willing to share with others, even if you don't know how it's going to work. You're willing to live generously, sacrificially. You refuse to hoard. Um, You don't take credit for the stuff you have. For your bank account, your house, your car. Like, yeah, you're smart, you work hard. But even those are, even those are a gift, right? And you acknowledge that, that he's given them to you and you, you stop regularly and just say, God, thank you for the ways that you've provided for me. You know, another, another way, um, another sort of test of, of whether or not we're trusting for our needs is, is when you are lacking, because that happens. It's, that's where some of you are right now. When you are lacking, you don't panic, even though you may feel afraid. And listen, let me even say here that if, if there are needs in your life that you can't meet, you've got to tell your church. We are Jesus' body, and no, we cannot create bread out of thin air. And yet we want to do what Jesus does for his people, right? Because of generous people within our church who trust God for their provision, we're able to help those in need. And if there's a need that we can meet in your life or, or a way that we can come alongside you and help in that, we want to do that because that's, that's who our king is, right? That's what he does. And as his people, that's who we are and that's, that's what we want to do. So Jesus is the compassionate king. But there's more. To be worthy of worship, Jesus can't just be a nice guy, right? He can't just be loving and compassionate, right? There's got, there's got to be more than that. And yes, we, we see that in his ability to, to multiply bread, but it really comes in view as the day continues for the disciples, that he's also the powerful king. Man, we're talking a long day, like nobody's getting any sleep tonight, not these disciples. It's just not going to happen. So, so what happens, right? You can picture it, they just did the bread thing, and the disciples are still like just, I mean, they're just trying to figure it out, right? They're, they're in shock of what's happening. And Jesus sends them away immediately. Like as soon as they're done, he's like, Go. Uh, get out of here. Like, I'll dismiss the crowds, right? Kind of do, do my thing. And then Jesus says, I'm going to go off by myself and I'm going to pray for a while. Like, get a little, a little me time. You guys take the boat, go to the other side, and I'll join you there eventually. That, that's, that's what Jesus tells them. And a storm barrels in. And don't, don't miss that, right? Jesus sent them into the storm. 
Right? Matthew, Matthew is not confused by this point. As he's writing this, he knows what's happening. He knows where Jesus is, is pushing them towards as he, as he writes. I don't think he did at the time. But Jesus knows and he sends them right into the storm. And it's, it's a bad storm, people. Um, week before last, uh, we went camping as a family along the Missouri River, just one night. And in the middle of the night, like right around 1 a.m., this unbelievable storm just like woke us up out of nothing. I mean, it was one of those, it was one of those nights in the tent, quite honestly, where it was sort of like, kids, it's going to be fine. We're okay. I think we're going to die. You know, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. It was that kind of moment. I mean, the tent was practically sideways. Uh, the stakes were all ripped up. We were the only thing keeping that sucker to the ground. Okay. Um, I mean, I literally, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Like I saw the headlines um, as I'm there um, bracing myself against the metal pole in an electrical storm uh, to keep it from snapping, right? Because I'm afraid the whole thing is going to snap and, and collapse on us. Like, like the headline, I couldn't decide. There were two, two options in my head. One was, uh, you know, entire family struck by lightning and fried in their tent. Um, or, or blown into the river to drown. Um, I couldn't decide. I think I'd prefer the lightning. I don't know. Either, either way, right? And that's, that's what it was, right? Uh, and uh, spoiler alert, we uh, were fine. Uh, but we didn't know that at the time. And like in the morning we got up and there's like branches down everywhere as we as a family tried to sleep in a plastic bag, right? Um, it's family memories right there. Um, for 15 minutes, our storm raged. That's it. That's all it was. And I tell you what, it felt like forever. The adrenaline, the hearts pounding, the kids freaking out, the parents freaking out. Their storm was probably closer to nine hours on the water. In fact, I love, I love Rembrandt's uh, version of, of a similar story. It's not this one, but it's very similar. And you just, you look at that and you cannot imagine it getting any worse. But it does. Because they look out, right, from the boat, scanning out across the water, I can only presume, right, they're either looking for land or they just want to see the wave that finally kills them, right? That's what I would want. I'd want to see it coming for me. Um, And as they're staring out, Matthew tells us what they saw. Him walking on the water. And he describes it like this. He says, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. I mean, just imagine what that must have felt like. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Which I think is just proof that Jesus had to have a sense of humor, right? Like, guys, hey, it's a terrible storm. It looks like you're all going to die. I'm walking on water, but it's cool, right? I got this. And they, I mean, they have no, they've seen some cool stuff from Jesus, but can you imagine him? I got this, right? And I love even the way, the way he says it there, because the, the, the phrase, it is I, in the language can actually be translated I am, um, which is the, sort of the Old Testament name for God, for Yahweh. So it's more than, it's most, most commentators and scholars would say, it's more than just Jesus saying, hey, it's me. It's Jesus saying, here I am. I am. Do not be afraid. Take heart. God is here. And in just a couple of minutes, he's going to quiet the storm that would otherwise destroy them. And they know, right? Only I am can do that. Only the God of the universe can do that. 
And we, we need to understand as well for, that for them, like culturally, historically, that a storm isn't just a storm, and the sea isn't, isn't just the sea. Like, we, we can understand those things better from our perspective, right, scientifically. We understand that, but for them, you know, like, in all of their writings, the sea is like the place of darkness. It's chaos. It is, it is danger. It's the unknown world of evil, essentially. They hated the sea, and it was a symbol for so much more. And so for them, like Jesus calming the storm and sea, it's more than him just calming the storm and sea. It's a picture of all strength over all evil, the powerful king, a kind of power they, they hadn't seen or experienced before. I mean, yes, maybe, you know, Moses, like he parted the waters. Jesus walks on them. And they had never seen anything like it before. And of course they're afraid. Who wouldn't be? But if this is who Jesus is, we can trust him with our fears, can't we? There's nothing he's afraid of. Nothing he can't trample underfoot. And whatever, whatever it is you're, you're afraid of, let's be honest, I mean, there are times, I know in my life, I'm sure in yours, when the, the sea and the storm are swirling and you feel like you're drowning and you're afraid because it's a scary world in which we live in and there is much to fear. And yet I don't think it's incidental that twice on this day, Jesus goes off by himself to pray. Did you catch that in the story? It's so interesting that Jesus does that, right? And yet that is one of the most effective means of quieting our own fears, right? Spending time with the one who quiets the storm. And Matthew saw Jesus walk on it. He felt the calming of the waves and the stilling of the wind. And they're beginning to know if Jesus can do that, if he can trample on the evil places, there's nothing he can't do. Only, only God can do that. And he just might be worthy of worship. But there's one more little tidbit in this story that I just can't quite get over. Because while we, we certainly need a compassionate king, one who cares for us, even in the ordinary, right? And, and we, we absolutely, we need a powerful king, one with the strength to silence our fears, finally and completely, it's still not enough. Because we don't deserve any of it. So how, how do we get this? How do, if, this is, if this is this king, how, how does he become our king? How do we begin to live under his compassionate and powerful rule? I love, I love this last part in the story. Because you see, Jesus is also the merciful king. Because before the storm quieted, right? So the waves are still crashing at this point. Peter bless him, right? Seeing Jesus trample on the sea for some reason likes the idea of joining him, right? I mean, like who does that, right? I mean, they've been fighting the storm for nine hours. They're exhausted. I can't imagine all that they're feeling. And they see this man strolling on the waters. And Peter's like, hey, can I join you? And I imagine all the other disciples, right, mouths hanging open at this point because they don't even understand what Jesus is doing. Here's Peter. But Peter, Peter, I mean, he's finally starting to catch on just, just a tiny bit. And so he cries out, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And I'm like, what is Matthew thinking at this point? Right? It's probably think, like, this is stranger than fiction, right? I gotta, gotta write this stuff down. But when Peter saw the wind, 
He was, too, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And like, just even think about that moment. You know, like Jesus in this, this, this high picture of his power and might, they've just seen his compassion. Here, Peter. I mean, frankly, I mean, it's cool for a minute, right? Then he just totally blows it. And so Peter cries out to him and you, know, you almost picture Jesus like, is he gonna just say, you know what? This is your fault. Like, just trust me, all right? Stop it, right? Or, or you picture like, well, you know what? As soon as you get your, your stuff together, right? You study yourself, then, then, I'll, you know, then I'll save you. Or maybe just like, you made your bed, now you're gonna sleep in it, right? Forget about it, right? If you've blown it like this, I don't want anything to do with you. But not, not our king. Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And it's so interesting, because yeah, he rebukes Peter, right? Because Jesus has so much more in store for Peter, for those who trust him, like who give everything for him, to, that, that lean on him to that capacity. He, Jesus knows he's calling Peter to so much more. He longs for so much more in his life, just as he does as, for ours, and yet, Immediately, God himself, our God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one who loves us, who comes to rescue us, he reaches out and God takes Peter by the hand and he saves him. The merciful king. Because finally now in this story, there's a place where I feel like I can maybe have a little bit of hope. I mean, the compassion's great, the power is great, man. We need the whole picture, don't we? To, to think that, yes, we, we can trust him even with our failures. Not just with our needs, not just, not just with our, our fears, but even in our failures. We can't, because we can't earn his compassion, right? We can't wield his power or manipulate him, and yet he offers such mercy. And if Peter fails, I mean, here's the thing, right? If Peter fails, who saw this, experienced it, like, we're gonna fail, Right? Our, our faith is going to be insufficient. Our, our ability to worship this God is going to be inadequate. But friends, you don't have to have enough faith to walk on water. You just have to have enough to say, save me. God, would you save me? And he will for this. This is why he came. And it's in this moment when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Because they'd encountered his compassion, his power, his mercy, and they do, I mean, again, what no, no Jew would have ever done, right? But they'd seen it. They worship him, and they recognize him for who he is. I mean, it's like finally for Matthew as he's writing this. Finally, somebody in the story gets it, right? Finally, somebody understands that this is the son of God. And for them culturally, right, a son does what his father does. That's, that's, that's what it means to be a son. And so when they're saying that he's the son of God, they're, they're saying more than just who you are. But this is, it's all-encompassing. It's, it's, it's what you do and who you are. It's all of it. And finally, they, they begin to understand but I have, to, I have to kind of wonder, like, like the next day, I mean, they're just kind of like, do you think they regretted it? Like, maybe a little bit. They're kind of like, gosh, we were really afraid. We were super tired. I mean, did we, did we really worship our rabbi? Like, this guy, right? I mean, I mean, they had to have some of those thoughts. Like, what, what have we done? We've, we've left our identity, our heritage, everything that we've known and held on to. Like, 
we didn't, we didn't know what we were doing, right? Because honestly, I mean, Matthew's going to show, they don't know what they're doing. They don't fully understand what's happening in this moment. It, they, in some ways, they are way ahead of themselves. In fact, it, it kind of reminds me like in a, in a dating relationship when, when one person says, I love you, like just a little bit too soon. You know what I'm saying? Right? And you want to get those words back and they're out there. And they might be true, but it's just too soon. Because the reality is, Matthew, according to the way he tells his story, uh, the disciples, they're not going to worship Jesus again for a really long time. We're in chapter 14. The end is chapter 28. That's after the resurrection. That's the next time Matthew's going to tell us that they worship. It's not going to be until after they see Jesus hanging on the cross, ultimate compassion on display as he as he took their place and died on their behalf. It's not going to be until after Jesus comes out of the grave where Jesus doesn't just walk on water, but he walks away from death, out of death, the ultimate act of power, where he doesn't just, doesn't just promise, um, or doesn't just give us a picture of the end of all evil, but promises that evil is the one that's going to die, and death is going to be destroyed. And, and really, it, it wouldn't be until after Jesus himself, the resurrected Christ, comes and finds them. Because at the end of the story, we'll, we'll get there, but like, I mean, eventually. Um, but like, all the disciples run. Peter denies him. Like, his best friends leave him in his greatest moment of need. They abandon him. And yet in Matthew 28, Jesus goes and he finds them. He calls Peter back. He gives them a job to do. I mean, it's ultimate mercy on display. And there, in that moment, seeing the full picture, there they worship they worship again better than they knew back in the boat, better than they could have understood. And now for us, right, we here this morning, like we, we've seen it all. We, we've heard these stories. We understand a fuller picture than they possibly could have at this moment in the boat. That he's not just a man. That he can't just be a good teacher or an inspiring leader or revolutionary. That he is God himself with skin on the king, the king we want, the king we need, the king who can be ours if we'll have him. And I realize you may not, you may not believe a word of any of this, and I, I get that, I, I, I understand that. Um, these, these stories are very hard to believe. But you've got to at least admit to yourself that you want it to be true. I, I know, wanting something to be true doesn't make it true, Right? But don't you feel that longing when you see this picture of a king like this? Don't you long for that in this, this world that's so broken? Don't you long for it in a life that continues to be messy and the messes that we ourselves make, we long for it. And if you long for that, you at least have to explore it. You have to look into it wondering, is there something here that speaks to these longings so deep within me? Friends, this is what our God offers to us. Hope in our greatest needs, comfort in our deepest fears, and restoration for every failure. What will it take for you to worship? Let's pray. God, I pray that in this, this moment for each of us, God, just as you reached out your hand to rescue Peter, God, would you reach again into my heart, into my life? God, would we have the humility to cry out, Lord, save me? Realizing that we can't do it on our own, we can't save ourselves, we can't, we can't figure out life on our own, that we need you speaking into it, and you, we need you to rescue us. 
So God, I pray that you would prompt that in us, that longing, that desire, and that glimpsing your compassion, your power, your mercy, that we would be drawn to worship. Not, not just here in this moment, but God, as a lifestyle, that we would um, live our lives in adoration of you, and that that then would change everything in our lives. Lord Jesus, we thank you. God, we are so grateful that you reach out your hand to broken and messy people long before we can even uh, start cleaning up our act or trying to make things right. God, that you reach out to us. God, I pray that we would respond to you in faith. I pray this in Christ's name.